Amen, amen. So good to see everybody. Welcome in again, everybody online. Hey, thank you, worship team. I know we're missing some of our usual pieces, but I'm so grateful to be led in worship by you guys. Hey, would you do me a favor and turn to Psalm chapter 129? If you're here with us, if you haven't already, would you grab a communion pack? Here in a few moments, we're going to be receiving communion just as we do every week. And if you're at home, I encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to grab some bread, maybe some wine or some juice. And even though you're not here physically, we are still the body of Christ that receives the body and blood of Christ together. So, if you're all set, you're there in Psalm 129. Let me remind you where we've been for the last, give or take, 10 weeks. This is the 10th of 15 Psalms of Ascent. The 15 Psalms of Ascent are songs that were sung by pilgrims like us on our journey toward God. Unlike us, these songs were on the greatest hits road trip soundtrack as these pilgrims 2,000 plus 3,000 years ago would literally walk and ascend up the hill to the temple to worship God. Like us, however, though we may not be ascending physically, we are walking toward God and expecting to meet with Him, just like these ancient pilgrims ascending. They would sing these songs traveling together, and we are exploring these songs as we journey together in our own life with God and one another. Before we get into this psalm this evening, I want to give you three bonus reminders about the psalms in general. Here they are on the screen. The psalms, all 150 of them, cover the scope of human emotion and experience. It's a varied landscape of the highs of our emotions and experience and the lows of human experience. For that reason, number two, the Psalms are timeless and universal. The same kinds of things they experienced, the same kind of things they felt, are the same kind of things that we can feel. Several years ago, one of our favorite local musicians, Amy and I, he did a whole record of psalms, just verbatim, straight up. And we would go to Deep Ellum and watch him sing these songs in bars because he realized what I'm sharing with you, there's a timeless, universal quality to feeling beat up, knocked down, sad, low, and joyful. You with me on that? The Psalms are timeless and universal. Third reminder before we get going, the Psalms also, because of all of that, they give us permission to be real before God and others. The Psalms is the prayer book of God's people. The Jewish people, Christian people, Psalms are the prayer book. And let me tell you, it's real. They give us permission. If they can speak like that, we can speak like that. If you're feeling sad, there's a psalm for that. If you're feeling joyful, there's a psalm for that. If you're feeling thankful, there's a psalm for that. 
How about if you're feeling beat up and angry? Psalm 129 is for that. The psalm we're about to look at. Depending on how you read it, most scholars would agree there's at least just two halves. The half where you're saying, I'm beat up, and then there's the half that says, I'm angry. And with all of that, I'm going to pray about it. Why? Because the Psalms cover the scope of human emotion and experience. The Psalms are timeless and universal, because there's a lot of us that feel that way too. And third, the Psalms give us permission to be real before God and others, because Psalm 129 wasn't just for him. He invites the whole community ascending to God to sing along. It's wild. It's crazy. It probably won't wind up on some of your greatest hits, like Psalm 23, but it's here in God's word for the people of God. Let's take a look. You with me? Psalm 129, verse 1. After we see that heading that says, A Song of Ascents. Verse 1. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Then he says, let Israel say, that's his way of saying, all together now, sing it with me. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Here's the first of two buts. That's B-U-T. I know we got some children in the house. But they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows. That's like the trenches you see when you're driving past the farmland. They've made their furrows long, but, that's the second but, the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Oh, that's the they he was talking about, the wicked. That vague term for the people who are attacking him, oppressing him, beating him up. That's the first half. The I'm beat up half. Watch the second half. Verse 5. Ready? May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow a reaper could not even fill his hands with that kind of grass, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. That is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. This is real talk. I don't know that you're going to hear that last half of the psalm as our benediction this evening. But we're going to talk about that in a moment. First, as we get into it, I want to tell you, you could read this song as a kind of diss track. You know what a diss track is? If you're a fan of hip-hop, you know what a diss track is. A diss track is a song that's whole purpose is to roast somebody, is to insult somebody, is to step up the beef. To raise the stakes. This is a diss track for the wicked who have been beating him up since he was young. But more than a diss track, this, at its most basic level, is a song about perseverance. I'm beat up, I'm angry, 
but they haven't won. I'm still standing. Did you get that? Perseverance is not about resignation. What I mean by that is, well, it is what it is. It'll be what it'll be. This is just my life now. I'm just this victim all the time. No, no, no. Perseverance is not resignation. And nor is it about perfection. And that is, well, I'm just going to keep going because I'm going to be perfect. Or, man, I'm just going to keep going, but, man, I'm never going to really fully get there. Perseverance is not about just throwing it all away, nor is it about I'm going to keep going, keep going, keep going, because I'm going to one day be perfect. No, perseverance is not about resignation or perfection. Perseverance is about progress. It's about progression in the face of obstacles. This is a song that says, I'm not just going to throw in the towel and say it is what it is, nor am I going to just pretend like I can just will myself out of it and be okay and be perfect. No, I'm going to be making progress even though the wind and the world and the words are against me. That's perseverance. And whether you have heard it or not, let me be the one to tell you, you have persevered in the last 18 months. If you are sitting here or watching there, if you are living and breathing, you have persevered. There is one thing that every single person in our nation, in the world, has experienced, and that is some kind of struggle. Physically, mentally, emotionally, fill in the blank. If you're standing here, congratulations, you have persevered. So I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at two notes that this psalm teaches us in these two halves about how pilgrims like us can keep persevering. Two notes and then one big idea that is going to get bigger as we go. Because we've all faced struggles and I want us to keep going. I want us to keep persevering. Two notes, one big idea. The first note you'll see here on the screen with my little boxer man. It's awesome. The first note is this. Pilgrims persevere even when we're pummeled. Because perseverance is about progression in the face of obstacles. Pilgrims persevere even when we're pummeled. I love that little boxer man, but I also love this next kid in this picture here. Y'all see that? <clears throat> That's Emma in our front yard doing a cartwheel. And let me tell you, these cartwheels didn't always look this way. How many of you have seen the toddler cartwheel? How many of you can bear witness to the fact that the altitude of the toddler cartwheel is pretty low, below sea level? She is a picture of perseverance, not only because she's progressed, but because she's taken a beating. She's been pummeled. I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you, I cannot count for you how many horrifying cartwheels we've witnessed that almost always, for years, wound up what? How, Emma? You landed on what? Your feet or what? Your knees? And then 
that graduated to your back. It was the most horrifying, contortionistic back bend, and she would just land flat on her back. And then she'd get up, and we're like, this is it. She's done it. She's, she's gone now. And she tries it again. That, to me, is perseverance. These painful back bends where she landed so many times flat on her back, smacking against the ground. But she gets up, she goes again, and she's a little bit closer to a cartwheel. In verse 1, this person is saying, I've been pummeled, I've been oppressed, since I was yay high, my cartwheels were down to the ground, to this day, I'm still oppressed, I'm still getting pummeled, and he says, by the way, sing it out if you have to. Because remember that this prayer book, before it was our prayer book, was a prayer book of a people who were enslaved and beat up from military superpower after military superpower, kicked out of their homeland. These people have been oppressed, not only on an individual level since they were yay high, but from a nation level. They've been beat up, knocked down, but they're still standing. They're not knocked out. That's that first but that I mentioned earlier. But they have not had a victory over me. They've not gotten the upper hand. It's remarkable how this book, the Bible, is written from a people who are routinely beat up, who are routinely the underdogs, and yet never really considered themselves a victim. Because they realized that they were united to the God of the universe in some special, profound, covenantal way. I think it's why Paul, who is raised with the Hebrew Bible, who encounters Jesus, steeped in the stories of an underdog, beat up, pummeled nation, can turn around and in a chapter like Romans 8, please write down Romans 8, please Read that now or later tonight. It's why Paul, who is steeped in this tradition of a people who've been beat down, can still say, we face death all day long. We're like sheep led to the slaughter. He goes, no, 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 no. And all of this, whether nakedness or danger or famine or persecution or sword, with whatever we face, no, we are more than what? Conquerors. Through my own sheer force of will? No, through him who loved us. Not one of those things can separate us for the love that God has for us in Christ. So the first but is, you know what? We're actually not victims, even though we're getting pummeled and assaulted. Why? Because the second but is actually hidden within verse 4. But the Lord is righteous, and he's cut the cords. I'm going to circle back to that image in a moment, but I need you to understand that that word righteous is a relationship word. Righteous means I'm in right standing. I'm in right relationship. We can look at Mr. Boxer Man because God is in my corner. 
Pilgrims can persevere even when we're pummeled because we're in right relationship with the one who's got our backs and who will make sure, like Amy and I did, after cartwheel after cartwheel, that you're not going to break your neck. That you may hurt your back, you may get knocked down, but ultimately, 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 you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I've been pummeled my whole life, singing out, you have too, but they haven't got the upper hand. I'm no victim. And it's why the writer of Hebrews, and we read it earlier in our scripture and prayer time, could say this. So let's run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer who goes first, and the perfecter, the one who's working it out of faith. For the joy set before him, watch, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Pause real quick. Don't forget that before resurrection comes crucifixion. Never forget this. This is the story that gets repeated throughout the cosmos from now and then that before reorder and renewal, there is disorder and death. Death precedes resurrection. But because Jesus looked beyond it and trusted his Father, he could endure the cross, scorn its shame, because he knows, he trusts, he hopes, he has faith that the Father will raise him. So consider him, verse 3, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When this person, Jesus, is not only in your corner, but surrounding and sustaining and going ahead of you and fighting for you, then you can be a pilgrim that can persevere and read the first half of Psalm 129 and say, man, I've been beat up and knocked down, but Jesus, when I look to you, I realize that I am not nor will not be fully knocked out. This is the life of faith. To trust that this can be our experience too. So here's the big idea that's going to get bigger as we continue. Our journey with Jesus will be like Jesus' journey, marked with obstacles, enemies, and hurt. Before resurrection, crucifixion. The man who said, take up your cross and follow me, and then did it, he took up a cross, why do we expect any less when we say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to give you my life. Now give me all the cars, all the fame, all the money, all the houses, all the food, all the good things, forever and ever, amen, till I'm a hundred and I die peacefully in my sleep. But yet, not a week goes by that I'm not beset by some obstacle or hurt or just annoyance that I don't get so bent up out of shape. And I'm reminded, wait, consider him who endured such things so that you might not lose heart. This is what I signed up for. 
America's in a real bad shape if we're walking around like victims all the time when they crucified the one we profess to follow. So when the person that we don't like is in office or something happens that we don't like, we look around and we say, but man, and the whole 2,000 year journey of our brothers and sisters or across the pond in Afghanistan or our brothers and sisters at the border today, we look around and we say, they know struggle, they know suffering, but they know Jesus and they're trusting him and they can teach us something when we feel put upon, spat upon and beat up. Because our Savior is acquainted with grief and suffering so that when we become acquainted with grief and suffering, we can look to him and say, okay, 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 you're still with me. You didn't abandon me. You're still not only in my corner, you're surrounding me, you're sustaining me, you're forming me through it, and I'm going to trust that you'll bring me to the other side. Pilgrims keep their eyes on Jesus, and that's what lets them keep going. That's the message of Hebrews 12, perseverance is about progress, not perfection. Things aren't going to be perfect. And it's not about resignation. Well, this is just what it is, and it's never going to get better. No, that's not perseverance. In verse 3, the psalmist uses this image to say, let me tell you how bad it was. Imagine the psalmist laid down on a massage table, got his back there, ready for a nice massage, and he says, no, 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 my back was the field, and my enemies were the farmers, and they brought their oxen, plopped them on my back, strapped them up with all the equipment, and they said, go, and they started plowing rows and trenches in nice long lines across my back. That's what it felt like to be put upon, spat upon, beat down, and oppressed. My back is the field, my enemies are the farmers, and then the second but comes. But the Lord is righteous. He's in my corner, he's surrounding me, he's sustaining me. And so this is where we say, oh, right, The image goes that because the Lord is righteous and because he snapped the cords, it's as if the enemies kept trying to send the oxen down the back to go finish this row, but he's cut the cords, which means they're not connected to the equipment digging the trenches anymore. That it's actually not sinking down and doing its damage the way they believed it to. To say that he cut the cords in this image is to say what they thought was uh, just draining me and dragging me is actually not destroying me. You with me on this? Look back over the last year, the last bit of your journey, and remember what felt like it was just wearing you and weighing you down. Remember that financial thing that you just thought you could never get out from under? Remember that physical sickness that you just never thought you'd get out from under? Remember that relational stress and strife that you never thought would be reconciled or at least in a place of decency and respect? 
I'm sure that there's stories here that even though you experience some pain and you may even have scars, remember that when Jesus was raised, he still had the nails, scars in his hands. It may have marked you, but ultimately it didn't destroy you because God has brought you or is still presently bringing you through it. And did you do it alone or was there another in the fire like we just sang? That's the real truth. Did God bring you through or was it your sheer force of will? Or was it your own perseverance and recognition that God is giving strength to your steps? He's cut the cords. They may have hurt you, but they're not destroying you. You're here. You're standing because you're persevering. And God is still working as long as you're still walking. That's what's going on. Did you get through all of that alone? No. And guess what? Neither did Jesus. Do you understand that when Jesus was fully human, walking the earth, Jesus could persevere because he looked beyond the struggle for the joy set before him. He looked to the Father. He trusted he'd bring him through, even through death itself. And he was filled with the power of the Spirit, which is how our big idea gets bigger. Watch this. Earlier I said our journey with Jesus will be like Jesus' journey, marked with obstacles, enemies, and hurt. But also, this is how we get bigger. This is a grande order now. Ready? But also like Jesus, we walk each step trusting the Father and being filled with the Spirit. But he cut the cords. So I'm going to trust God that this will not destroy me. It hurts, it stings, but I'm going to walk the next step until I realize you cut the cords and what they meant to hurt me is ultimately not destroying me. He has cut the cords. That's the first half of this psalm. The second note is this. Pilgrims persevere even when we're not perfect. Pilgrims persevere even when we're not perfect. This is the prayer we see in the second half of Psalm 129. There are no perfect people. Spoiler alert, you know this. Not even God's people, not even the people who wrote and lived the stories and experiences Oh, except for this one guy I saw in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's kind of a Simpsons joke, but that's for another day. And because there's no perfect people, there's no perfect churches. I think that this is something we've really got to reckon with, that not all churches can be all the things for all the people. Not all churches are perfect. Not all people or pastors are perfect. And yet... Watch this. Do you think that Christians are the greatest at extending the most grace to imperfect people? And shouldn't we be? Shouldn't we because Jesus was? 
And shouldn't we, because we're connected to how imperfect we are and how imperfect our world is, and yet we rarely extend that kind of grace to ourselves or to others. I think because Christians also rarely keep it real about how they feel. Christians rarely keep it real about their bad days and their hurts and their hang-ups and their habits. When I was at another ministry, it was a Christian 12-step ministry I've talked about here and there, and our first meeting, we had a lot of interest and a lot of excitement. There was probably 60 to 70 people that came, and it was lovely. And then they realized, oh, wait, no, the, no, the whole thing is we, we, we talk about it. Oh, we, we talk about our hurts? Hmm, okay. Oh, we talk about our habits? Oh, right. See, when I heard that thing that was called open share and small group, I was like, yeah, but do we share in a group? <laughs> the next week, there were 10 people. And so we had a relationship with the men's halfway house that did AA every other day of the week and a relationship with the women's rehab. And so we said, well, if these other people aren't coming, maybe they will. And then the following week, we had like 75 people. And it was glorious, and it was messy, and it was beautiful. And it felt like every week, grace was soaking and spreading and being shared because we were in touch with the fact that we are imperfect people that live in an imperfect world. And Psalms can help us get real about how we feel and how we don't always get it right, we don't always see it right, and sometimes we don't always say it quite right. This week, a church member told me about a song that he stumbled upon. I'm, I'm serious. It was this week. And I wasn't even thinking about it for this sermon until literally two hours ago. I was like, this is perfect. This song that came out in 2010 is by this artist called Jaron and the Long Road to Love, which is kind of an awesome band name, The Long Road to Love. And it's a song called I'll Pray for You. Here's a little bit of the chorus, okay? I'm going to read it for you. It's not on the screen. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to play it. I'm going to read it. Here's, this, here's what it is. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. It's a song for his ex-girlfriend because he went to church and the pastor told him to pray and he says, I'm glad he reminded me. And that's what he wrote. Oh, I pray for you, honey. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I'm praying. What we see in the second half of Psalm 129 is an ancient version of I'll pray for you. I've been so beat up. I've been so hurt. This guy is going to keep it real and say in verses 5 to 8, hey, hope you get knocked down a peg, turned back in shame. 
hey, I hope uh, you're like the grass that grows up on our little roofs that don't get rooted. They can't really grow up green. They just become like um, dry, yellow, and they just kind of become like, actually, it's not even hay. It's not worth bundling up. Yeah, I hope you don't live much longer. Basically, that's what the psalmist is praying. And by the way, did y'all see that little benediction at the end? And the reason why we're not going to have that as our benediction this afternoon? He says, I pray that nobody says bless you when you're sneezing. That's basically what this psalmist is saying. May people not say God bless you. This is what we have in our Bible. And it's beautiful and amazing, isn't it? These psalms keep it real about how imperfect life is and how they feel about it. I'm going to paraphrase what one of my favorite preachers and authors, Brian Zahn, said once. In praying the psalms, we may not always express what they feel, but if we're honest, we can feel what they express. So just let that wash over you because some of you are saying, he's kind of, ooh, I don't like how he's talking about the Bible. This is the Bible. Yes. And have you read it? The Bible sounds the way it sounds because God is okay journeying with imperfect pilgrims. The Bible sounds the way it sounds because he let his kids tell the story. Okay? We can't always express what they feel. That's the reason why it won't be that benediction. But if we're honest, have you ever felt what they express? I'll pray for you, honey. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Just wait. It's true. We get so twisted when we say the Bible is, is all of these things. I love the Bible. What, we preach the Bible. We read the Bible. But, but we have to understand what the Bible is. It's a record of imperfect pilgrims dealing with the perfect God. And we get this beautiful, perfect, infallible, uh, authoritative word that's thorny and messy and beautiful and needs to be read and digested and worked on and let it work in you. you got to let it work on you. And you need to understand that it's true because it's true to the experience of humans reckoning and wrestling with the divine. And we're going to get psalms like this. We're going to get passages that make us scratch our heads and look and realize that God is bigger than we thought and that the Bible is more beautiful and messy than we realized. The temptation you might get when you face the second half of Psalm 129 is to say, ah, well, that's the Old Testament. Write this down for me, please. Write down Leviticus 19, verse 17 to 18. Or just look it up real quick. And then write down Exodus 23, 4 to 5. While you're writing that down, let me give you the snapshot of what it's saying. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18 says, don't hate. Don't take vengeance. Love your neighbor as yourself. You ever heard that? 
So lest you're tempted to say, well, that was the Old Testament, and he wrote these things that sound kind of mean. I can point you to some Psalms that are meaner. He didn't have Jesus to tell him to love his enemies and bless those who persecute you. Well, Exodus, I'm glad you asked, 23, says, hey, you know that guy that hates you? When his oxen is lost, go find it. When his donkey is trapped, help him get it out. Which is a very real, tangible expression of loving your neighbor as yourself and blessing the one who's persecuted you. Amen? So lest you think that this person that wrote this, you know, we're just more refined and we're just, oh, thank goodness we have Jesus now. He had it too. So here's what's going on. He knew God's way, but didn't always live it perfectly. Just like me. Amen? Just like us. But what's beautiful about the Bible is that it gets written down and it gets sung in the community because they say, I felt that. That resonates. That's true. That's profitable to help me place my anger in the proper context. There's another song. It's by Mr. Rogers. It's a song that poses a question. What do you do with the mad you feel? Have you heard this? What do you do with the mad you feel? Just like the other song, I'm not going to sing it or play it. I'm going to read it to you. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? <laughs> then he says later in the song, it's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. What do you do with the mad you feel? Another way we can take it a step further is with this image, and it's the image of the fire pit. The fire, of course, is a huge gift. It's amazing. What is a camp out without a fire? And it's amazing when it's in its proper place like it is in this image, behind a boundary. It's okay and good for it to burn. It's not okay when it spills over and burns up the entire West Coast. Amen? So it is with anger. Christians should extend grace not only to others who are imperfect, but to themselves, and allow yourself, dear Christian, to feel anger when you feel it. It really is okay because it can teach you something. Anger can teach you about where the hurt is tied and where you feel threatened. I am angry because perhaps you said this and it's a wrong perception. I am angry because how these people are being treated is not reflective of the image of God within them. It is okay to feel it and to be angry. It's okay to express it. And as Psalm 4.4 says, depending on the translation, be angry but do not sin. And here's something that I'm still really bad at, and 
will offer to you to learn with me in marriage or any other kind of relationship? Am I expressing this anger to hurt or to inform the other person? I'm feeling it, and it's teaching me about some hurt or threatening presence. So within the boundary marker of the fire, I don't want it to spill over and hurt, but am I able to express it in a way that informs? Have you started to learn the difference between hurt and inform? We talk about this as parents all the time. It's okay to be angry. It's not okay when that anger spills out and starts to burn us too. I think Christians need to be okay. The Jesus way rejects these extreme forms of anger. The first being this rage, revenge. When someone hurts you, you hurt them back. The Jesus way also rejects the head in the sand resignation when the world confronts you like we talked about a moment ago. So the last thing I'll say about anger is not only can you feel it and express it, to keep it in its proper fire pit boundary, you can redirect it. That's what Mr. Rogers sang about, and that's what the psalmist did. The psalmist put it into a poetic communal form to help us feel what they express. The psalmist, I think, also, if pushed, would understand that if anger energized an action to harm another, that's not God's way. He knew that in Leviticus and Exodus and the world around him. So it's okay to feel it and express it and redirect it. And for those of us who are Christians that see racism and they see injustice and poverty and hurt and hate and violence, what we can do with our frustration is express it and channel it into concrete action and concrete change that's rooted in creative love that rises above violence and recycles it into a new way forward. That's the Jesus way. That's the cross way. To bear all the violence and darkness and anger to kill God embodied in Jesus and recycle it, transform it through creative love and say, you're forgiven. That's the Jesus way. That's what the psalmist in a smaller way does with this psalm. He brings his anger and hurt and frustration to God because remember this psalm is a prayer. And the psalm gives us permission to bring our whole selves before God. When was the last time I brought my whole self to God? Because this is, this is, this is real talk here. What it is that you're holding back is really just holding up your process and progress of transformation. And he wants you to persevere in bringing that thing, even that, your whole self to him. To hold it open in your hand before him, quietly gathered in the presence of creative and compassionate and generative love that wants to take it and renew it and recycle it, redeem it, or even forgive and release it. What we hold back is actually holding up, impeding 
our persevering progress and process of transformation, but then what we give up gets recycled into the hands of the Spirit of God. When you're 90 years old, if God gives you another so many decades, do you want to be more generous or more greedy? Do you want to be more forgiving or more angry? If we're pilgrims on the journey, we need to start bringing our whole selves so that our whole self can be transformed. Sometimes Christians don't allow ourselves to be fully human, but even God allowed himself to become fully human in Jesus to show us that we can feel the whole scope of humanity that he can take on the kinds of hurts that we feel, that he can show us what it looks like when God cuts the cords of pain and brokenness and even death itself. So I'll close with another mention of Hebrews chapter 2. The writer is talking about how we're children of God And he says, since the children have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, too, shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's the writer of Hebrews version of saying, Yes, but the Lord is righteous and he has cut the cords. He's also cut the cords of death itself. So not only can you persevere in the face of oppression and enemies, but the greatest enemy, death itself, will not ultimately destroy you. And Jesus experienced this humanity and knew what it felt like to be pummeled, and he knew what it felt like to be angry. Jesus felt what you feel. Keep reading in Hebrews chapter 2, and you'll see this. He himself suffered when he was tempted, and he's able to help you who's being tempted. Jesus hurt how you hurt. Jesus struggled how you struggle. Listen to this. Jesus experienced what we experience. Obstacles, enemies, hurt, death. So that we can experience what Jesus experiences. Life, freedom, love, and resurrection. If he persevered through death, then we can too. Which is our final, biggest idea. This is the venti as we close. Our journey with Jesus will be like Jesus' journey, marked with obstacles, enemies, and hurt. But also like Jesus, we will walk each step trusting the Father and filled with the Spirit. So keep walking, because in the end, none of the struggles of earth can ultimately separate us from the life of heaven. Keep walking, even though it feels like you're just persevering. Through the pummeling, 
through all the imperfection and anger and hurt because God is still working and he's still walking with you now and forever. Amen. So now we leave this space of worship, and while so much of the road ahead is uncertain, the path constantly changing, we know some things that are as solid and as sure as the ground beneath our feet and the sky above our heads. We know God is love. We know Christ's light endures. We know the Holy Spirit, this there, found in the space between all things, closer to us than our next breath, binding us to each other until we meet again. Go in peace.